it's always good to hear the fellowship. So. So we'll go ahead and go get started. Um, I wanted to to just kind of um, stir ourselves up a little bit uh, into this passage, and we're in Romans two, four, and five. We will be there for a couple of weeks at least. But I I wanted to again. I think it will help us so much, particularly as you read the, any part of the Pauline corpus, if you carefully study Romans, it will help you so much with, with the rest of his writings. And this is another passage that I think is one of those really um, anchor passages that, that Paul gives us that has, as I've studied it this week, it, it, it's just um, taking on a much bigger um, role in my understanding of this book. But it, it, this passage is one of those ones, as we'll see even this morning, that, that Paul gives us this very almost Johannine-like compressed verse, and the words really matter in this verse. It's a beautiful verse. But then he'll, he's going to take those words and he's going to kind of cast them all the way throughout the book of Romans. And I think you'll see that this morning. And I want you to kind of capture that because I think as you read Paul, that's the way Paul, he will give you a thought in the form of words, and then he'll cast that into everything he writes. And it will really help you keep the continuity of thought that Paul has, which is so important with Paul. He's just a, an amazing mind. Um, but his prevailing purpose, and we talked a little bit about this in our, our, our reintroduction to, to the book, um, that there's a strong emphasis about, and he says it over and over again, to the Jew first and then the Greek, right? So he's got this sequence that he works that through, which, which I think as we've studied gives uh, a much better understanding as to why why Romans 9, 10, and 11 is so important. Many see it as this interruption of the flow of the book, but it is in perfect harmony with exactly what he's trying to speak. And by the way, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to, to write this very cohesive, which gives you wonderful insight in the mind of God, just the orderliness of God, um, even in the way he expresses himself to us. <clears throat> But, but this first section of Romans 3.20 has one primary intent, and that is to level both Jew and Gentile to the clear fact that apart from God's intervening work in our lives, we are absolutely condemned. And every single day, we prove that to be true. That's Paul's whole point to get to Romans 3.20 so that Every mouth may be shut. But there's another, there's a, so that, that is absolutely his intention, which is why he then very naturally goes to, okay, so how are we saved? Through justification by faith, right? It's this beautiful sequence. But, I, but his, his much broader intent of this letter 
is to bring the Jew and the Gentile together in the community of the saints. And I think you're going to see that beautifully this morning. So just look at Romans 3.9. I'm going to read a couple of passages and then pray. Look at Romans 3.9 as, as a real strong indication as to what Paul is getting at with this first section. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So he's leveling off the Jew there. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And that is his intention. We don't come to Christ through any other means other than the realization that we are utterly and hopelessly sinful, no matter how good we think we are. <laughs> right? That's Paul's primary in point. And now, but, there, but there's a much more important reason, because if you just stopped at 320, we'd all be in serious trouble, right? If you went on to Romans 321, on out into Romans 8, you would know much more about how we're saved and what it looks like when we're saved. But Paul has a much broader intention, and I think the best way to express that intention uh, is in Ephesians 2, verse 11. And then we'll come back to Romans 15 just to help put an end cap on it. But let me just read to you Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and, and posit this thought. This is Paul's primary purpose with this book found in Ephesians, but it permeates the entire book of Romans, okay? Ephesians 2, 11 says, and I, I, think we should, I think we should think deeply about these things that Paul writes here, right? I actually don't think we'll appreciate Romans 2, 4, and 5 if we don't deeply appreciate what Paul writes here in 2, 11 through 22 of Ephesians. Just ponder this in Paul's day. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, right? You see, who's that? <laughs> that's us and that's the Jewish people. The uncircumcision and the circumcision, right? So you see the centrality of circumcision in their thinking. And how we were just not part of that. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. having no hope and without God in the world. That, that's hard for us to fathom because isn't the church completely inverted now? How, how many Jewish folks do we have here? Even in the largest of churches, right? But then there was a large dominance of Jewish people in the church, right?
Verse 13, but now, beautiful words, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one, and here it comes, this is what I want you to see. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Hostility where? Between the Jew and the Gentile. Now first of all, how radical is this for the Jew? How wonderful is this for the Gentile until they hit the radical response from the Jew? Right? So you, you see what's, what's going to happen? You see the divisions? You see the class system, Jew and Gentile? Right? Paul runs straight at that. Right? The dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So important that he adds expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Jew and Gentile are now one man in Christ Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that is true for now Jew and Gentile. And I'm going to offer that this is a prevailing thought for Paul in this book of Romans. Verse 17, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, let, so excuse me, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now he's speaking to those Gentiles. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure now, Jew, Gentile, variety of gifts, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And that just obliterates all those ordinances and that temple, physical, because the temple's now here. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The middle wall. He's making a the All the various ways that the Jew excluded the Gentile. And you can go to the temple. You can go into the curtain. You can go into the Holy of Holies. Right? The court of the Gentiles. The, right? The, the, I mean, there were, there were barriers all the way through that. And... Paul's saying all that is obliterated because this is now the temple where Christ dwells, the Holy of Holies, right? If we can get our head wrapped around that. 
The only way you can is to realize God has chosen to do it that way because there is nothing here that is even remotely worthy or deserving of such a glorious gift from God. Right? And that's what Paul is building up. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. Let him, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's why it's so precious to know that it's not about a building. It's not about a church. It's not about this or it's not about that. You have the Spirit of God in you. And when the Spirit of God brings a multitude of people with the Spirit of God in them, the Spirit of God is richly dwelling in them and the Word of God is the means by which that whole group is fed through the internal work of the Holy Spirit and the external work of the Holy Spirit. This is why... This is why sound doctrine and sound teaching is so important. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Filling our minds with the truths of Scripture so that it can now be worked out by the Holy Spirit into our life to the ultimate unity in the church. Yes? All the ordinances. Right. Yeah. So we was like, are you saying that this is by way you are saved? And he was like, yes. Right. And so I was like, um, you know, we, we tried to kind of reason with him, but he was very dogmatic by like, yeah. <laughs> I have to do all these works to be able to, to be saved. It was real, it was kind of, it was real sad. Yeah. Kind of know what yeah. And, it, and every time I walk away from those kind of conversations, I'm either, either left thankful or wanting that I either brought the right passages of scriptures or, or did not rely on the Spirit of the Lord to prompt me with those. And, and, but we do believe that we have to be saved by obeying those things, and, but we can't. But Christ did, and so our faith in Christ does accomplish. Right. Yeah, so just point is uh, those commandments had to be kept perfectly period absolute truth we fail every day to keep even the simplest of those commandments so the question becomes how are we saved right right well and in the the simple and Tina and I had this encounter this week too, right? Two ladies, a lady and a young lady uh, uh, made their way halfway up to our house and I met them at the sidewalk and, and my first question is always, please explain to me where your righteousness comes from. You ask that question 
And this woman spent 30 minutes and could not even begin to answer that question, nor did she have a single place in her Bible to answer that question because it is a workspace system. Right. We're not saved by them. That's we're the problem. Right. And that's that's right. That's really where you have to clarify because they have gotten those backwards and are now using the works to get them to the cross and through the cross. Right. When those works flow out of the cross, out of all the things we're going to learn this morning. Right. In, in, in Romans 2, 4, and 5. So let's look at Romans 15, 4 through 7. Because what that passage in Ephesians is talking about is exactly what Paul's talking about here in Romans 15, verse 4. He said where he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. There's a, there's a standalone reason to always be in the scriptures, especially when the skies get very dark in our life. Because the hope comes, remember Jeremiah last week? Maybe the week before? In his deep state of depression? And then, I thought about God. I thought about God rightly, not wrongly. And I had hope. Right? That we might have help, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with who? One another. And who is, who is the one another in this context of Romans? What's he say over and over again? To the Jews and the Greeks, to the Jews and the Gentiles, right? In accord with Christ Jesus, that put that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for what? The glory of God. What a wonderful way to worship the Lord than to just seek the unity of the church in Christ, in the truths of Christ, in the truths of scriptures, right? Let me pray with a thought. I, I am absolutely certain that we have added as the church so many wounds to the body of Christ. Think about that. All our sinful ways within the body of Christ. Think about how many wounds we have created and are yet to be resolved. And I am absolutely 100% certain that we will not enter the full joy of the heavenly days until every one of those wounds have been healed. They've been opened up. They've been cleaned out. They have been closed. 
And finally, every one of us that are involved in that disunity in the church will finally have the unity that Christ always, through Paul and everywhere else, demanded. Right? So that yet again, he will be the one to whom we have all the praise and thanks. Right? It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Father, we just take this time as we gather together, and I pray that as we study these words and we, we draw off of them into our hearts and souls, that we would just be humbled, that we would just step back, and that we would see your glory and how wondrous your glory is. And I pray, Father, as we unpack this passage this morning and next, that we will see that glory all the more and have a zeal to share that glory with everyone that we encounter in life because not one single encounter is outside of your providence and your privilege of giving us that opportunity to share the goodness of God. So may we just honor you this morning, Lord, and may we praise you in your ever-precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Look, let's look at our passage, and I'd mentioned earlier, but this is a passage that will help us see <laughs> the words really matter here. They're carefully chosen. Romans 2, verse 4 and 5. After this scathing indictment, this immersion in just the perversity, Jeffrey, that you were talking about this morning, right? That are, that's now occurring in the first grade in the classroom, with the teacher, in the room, captured on video. That's where we are, folks. That, that's the level of pervert, that's the level of Romans 1. As Jeff said, it's, it's, it's certainly going this way, but it's going right down to the youngest and most tender of children. But Paul then, as we've seen, says, but who are you, old man? I see you judging. I see you condemning. I see you have some understanding of morality, and I see you see them as so far worse than you. But who are you, old man, who may condemn that sin in their life and condone this sin in your life? And maybe even worse, condone this sin in your life and in the church. I was encountered this week. A pastor came and just needed to talk through. He had a storm because uh, the daughter of a very popular family in the church wanted to be baptized while she was living openly with a man. And it was a storm. What do you do? Right? Go to Romans 1. 
Go to verse 24. He starts with sexual immorality. He then goes to homosexual immorality. And then he goes to everything under the sun that we do, right? It's very, very challenging and rampant in the church today. But then he comes to verse 4 and 5. And he kind of shifts the focus out of our condemnation to, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this word presume carries this same thought right out of verse 1 through 3 that says you look at God and you hold him up and you judge him and you determine that his righteous commands are not right. It's to look down upon God and to look down upon God's command. Why? Right? Because we just presume upon his goodness, his kindness, and his patience. I'm fine today. I don't seem to be having any massive problems today. Right? We'll unpack that a little bit. But the, the most basic meaning of that word presume, and we're going to walk through these uh, a bit this morning, is to despise or look down upon. And what does this say? What does Paul say? Do you despise and look down upon what? The riches of his kindness. Is that what you're doing, old man? Right? I'll read this to you. You can jump there if you want. But Deuteronomy's 18.20 is a very good view of this. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word of my name that I have not commanded him to speak. Now think about this when you climb into the teaching spot. Or who speaks in the name of other gods? It's even more fearful when you think of the rampant false religion that's going on. And any lie spoken in the name of the true God is a lie right out of the pit of Satan and has convinced someone that they can be just like God. What does it say? The same prophet shall die. Let's look at the word riches, just to get ourselves a bit immersed. Riches are often used as an indication of wealth, riches. But we can ask, what are the riches that Paul refers to here, where he uses this word five times in the book of Romans? And I want to introduce another thought, that, that these three words will, again, cast themselves right into the rest of this book in so many different ways. And here's a very good example. Look at Romans 9, 22 through 26. 
with this idea of, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Paul's going to unpack that anchor thought all the way through this book, but he does it most particularly in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So it says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured much, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now that'll give you a lot of insight into the other side of coming at what Paul is saying in verse 4 and 5. Or do you presume upon the goodness, the kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God? Well, here he's saying, what if God, in showing his wrath to the world, continues to show his wrath to the world, right? To make known his power, that same God who has endured with much, there it is, Patience, you see how this is flowing right through here? And what is he doing with these texts? He's taking Israel and saying, this is, this is what I've given you as an example. Not to be studied. And that's it. But to be studied and understood as knowing this is exactly what is going to happen to the church if we are unfaithful. If we make the same choices, we will see the exact same thing happen. And Lord knows we are. Right? Because 2 Thessalonians tells us that that time, when we get to that point in time, there is a massive falling away from what was once held very tightly, the truth, right? Paul's giving us a picture of how that unfolds here. Desiring to show his wrath, now think about that. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So the primary is to show his wrath, to show his power, because what should that properly engender in everyone who sees it and understands it? The fear of the Lord, which is what? The beginning of wisdom. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. I'm telling you, this is a passage that just makes people choke on the sovereignty of God. But Paul teaches us here, God is precisely and purposeful and intentional in revealing because Paul has already taught us that not one of us deserve the mercy he's now talking about at all. Right back to 2, 4, and 5, right? The riches 
of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, and here it comes, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. That's us. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. That's why we're given the book of Hosea. Where was she bought back from? Prostitution. The auction block. Bought back. How are we bought back? The blood of Christ. A much, an unfathomable, unmeasurable price. That's what Paul is trying to stir up all the way through this book. And he's saying, don't you Jews or Gentiles put yourself above one another because don't you remember you're down here condemned and have absolutely no hope apart from the intervening sovereign work of God. <laughs> So that he could show everyone the riches of his kindness. It's just amazing. Verse 26, And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And I think it's here where we can just simply say, Can't we just praise God for the riches of his glory? that he has saved some from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every different walk of life, every different career, every different profession. Talk about diversity <laughs> properly, right? The word kindness it's just simply goodness. That's why they translated some kindness, some goodness. But it is that quality of goodness, quality of motive, quality of intention. That's why when we talk about that thread that gets to our outward behavior, you better go to your heart. You better filter it with Scripture. You better take a look at what your motive is, what your intention is. And then you better look at how that manifests itself, right? Because it always starts back in that motive, right? God just expressed his motive here was to show his power, to show his wrath so that we would know the magnitude of his mercy. And the more we understand the magnitude of his mercy out of that absolutely dark condition, hopeless condition, we will magnify him in every way. And that's what he is stirring us up to here all the way through this book. So he uses this word kindness. Look at Romans eleven twenty two. Romans eleven twenty two says, Note that then... Note then the kindness, so there it is, and the severity of God. Puts them right side by side. 
severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. And he's speaking of this in the context of the generations of Israel that have fallen over and over and over. And yet now they have fallen in the most stunning of ways, crucified the very son that Jesus told in the parables, right? That has now ushered in, in God's mercy, the church age. And if you carefully study Romans 9, 10, and 11, has one express purpose, to be the means by which we make Israel jealous for their redemption. What a God, right? Here comes the warning for the church. You see it all through this in Paul's writings. And <clears throat> provided you continue in his kindness, in his goodness, in his sacrificial ways, in his enduring, forbearing, with other sinners who sin against you, sometimes in horrendous ways. I was thinking about some of our experiences with Tim's ministry and these men that are living these double lives and drug addicted and some of the things that they did. <laughs> and we do that all day long to God. And yet, he endures with us, right? Because he is bringing to himself his eternal family that his beloved son died for in order to make them righteous when there is no righteousness in them no matter how many works they claim to do, right? It's supremely important to God to endure with sinful people because within them is his eternal family. Let's be with God there when we deal with our sinful brothers and sisters in Christ and we deal with our sinful, you name it, right? Goodness, forbearance, Patience. Wouldn't you love to just have a super dose of all three of those all the time? Right? Andy. Yes, sir. Come to the realization that people lie and break their word. God does neither. Mm -mm. His compassion is still not. Mm -hmm. I thought about that thread of thought when I was just thinking about presuming upon his goodness. What's he mean by that? Do you not realize just the fraction of your sinful life that would have fully justified God to have condemned us to hell? Do you not realize? How lost is that on the gospel presentation? This is the foundation that Paul starts at. It's totally skipped over. Right? 
Another wonderful place to see these riches is Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There it is. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were already dead in our trespasses when God loved us to salvation. Now think about that. He has to be active in that. God has to intervene in your spiritual deadness to bring you to this life and this life in Christ. And he does do that. Because of the great love with which he loved us, and we could add, undeserved in every way, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Kiana, right? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are already there. Isn't that a wonderful thought? As you struggle through the day with the battles with sin and the flesh and the world and you fail miserably, that you are already <laughs> seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, and here it comes, kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're already there. It's as good as done, but yet Ephesians 2.10 is still our life, the work that's been prepared beforehand for us, not to be saved, but to express the love for Christ that we have because of what he's done for us and to become the vessels by which the word of God now comes to a world who desperately needs that word, rightly taught, rightly loved, rightly divided. Not because we're worthy. Not because we get out from underneath Romans 2, 1 through 3. Because just like the Gadarene, we just want to go tell everybody, everything Christ has done for us. Just start there and speak of his goodness, his forbearance, and his patience in your own life and see how much more tender the other person might be. Maybe the Lord has melted those walls away that keep all those religious people away from them. Right? Time goes by so fast, doesn't it? Micah 6, 8, another place. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, to love goodness? Right? It's very instructive. And to walk humbly with your God what he wants us to do next word forbearance this one was really forbearance is to restrain oneself I would love to have a dose of that at times 
when whoever they are just knows exactly how to peel into your triggers which come from all kinds of places this is the self-restraint and tolerance of God in the backdrop of the magnitude of our sin against him not to mention the frequently but the magnitude of the sin against God right Exactly. Yep. Very much. Christ, when they came to arrest him. Why did they all fall down twice when he spoke? To show the power that he had. Yeah. Right? Why? It's really good. Why? Because he could look up. Because he knew exactly what the Father was doing. And what the Father was doing was so much bigger than what anybody else that night was doing. They were actually just going to be the wicked vessels God would use to bring us salvation. And he did it in complete self-restraint. Right? The capillaries exploding in his face tell you what was going on inside of that man Christ Jesus right don't ever write that night off as well he was God those capillaries tell us he was man as much as he was God and it was exactly self-restraint under a humility that understood the father is in complete control of this and even at that point, the son was the vessel, wasn't he? In eternity's past. Think about this, and we're obviously not going to get through this morning's study, but that's just fine. It's hard for us to get our head wrapped around the fact that God, God does not operate in the, the same time that we do. Our time is... Chronos, it ticks along, doesn't it? And we measure back and we measure forward based on it. God is Kairos. It's all things, all at once, all the time. He sees it all, right? So we often try to reach a thought up into that uncomprehendable. And I think about the fact that at some point, and there's the human introduction of what is divine, right? In eternity's past, which the eternity has no past, present, or future, right? There was a choice made in the perfect solitariness of the triune God. That the Son would enter his creation. And on behalf of the Father... Go and die the most horrific of deaths known to man so that he could be the means by which the righteousness requirement would be met to satisfy, to, to be both just and justify the redemption of sinners who have no righteousness 
whom the Father from eternity's past has chosen as a love gift of undeserved sinful people who would be their eternal family. The riches of his goodness and forbearance and patience are all bound up in that precious work of redemption between the triune God, right? This self-restraint and tolerance. Look at, look at Romans 3.21 with this word forbearance and that thought I just gave you in mind. But now, and, and here's another great passage, Kiana, um, and all of us. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul has made that abundantly clear and are justified. Very important word, we'll get to that. By his grace as a gift. And he would tell you in Galatians and in various places in Ephesians, not by works as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus you see the centrality on the person of Jesus Christ here it is it is all completely exclusively the person of Jesus Christ and if you want to clear a liberal table <laughs> Dean and I have experienced this just introduce yourselves as Bible believers who, with all their heart, believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, and that table would just go whoo, unless the fighter stays and they'll fight with you. Because Oprah and a number of very prominent evangelicals have very, very clearly said there are multiple ways to get to heaven. Can you imagine standing before the Father who crucified the Son and having the audacity to tell Him that He crucified His Son? But that was just one of the ways that we could get to heaven. It's horrific to think about how distorted that perversion is, but how rampant it is today. Which, by the way, breaks down all the barriers for ecumenicanism. So we can all get together because we all have multiple ways, but it's just all about how we see God. Right? This passage obliterates that. Verse 24, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That's why it's exclusively Christ. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, what the standard actually was. And to Jeff's point, it was 
It was not a removal of the law. It was a perfect fulfillment of the law in every way. And we receive that righteousness that belongs to Christ. That is that coat. That is that robe. It is placed on us. And thank God for glory, right? When the robe's no longer required to cover up what we are each and every day, right? And here comes this thought of forbearance. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And right there, in a very strange way, the believer can understand that the unbeliever who will never come to Christ can thank God for the believers who are yet to be saved because only for that reason is God restraining himself from completing this work. Think of it another way. If you see the rapture, right? One can realize that there is one final pre rapture soul that will come to Christ when that rapture occurs. And wham. And at that point, a measure of his divine forbearance is now removed. Because what begins? Seven years. Three and a half of which are the most horrendous false peace you can ever imagine. Three and a half are, is a complete state of utter lawlessness where the goodness and the forbearance and the patience of God has been removed. Which is a good place for us to end Numbers 14, 18. I'll just read it for you. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And some would say, well, wait a minute. I thought Paul said we're all guilty, right? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, and there is no shortage of controversy about that passage. But I think if we carefully study the passage, we fall away from God. We remove God-centeredness from the home. There is a natural tendency for unregenerate, unredeemed children to just attach themselves to that godliness and it just carries from generation to generation. And as God gives generation after generation after generation over, just look at our society today. Right? <laughs> That's this generational giving over. Because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and their foolish hearts were darkened. Thinking to be wise, they became fools. Right? So we will end there.
And we will pick up next week with the beautiful final word, which is patience. Okay? Thank you, guys. Yes.